You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. You bow with me in prayer as we begin. Our Father, we thank you for your grace to us in giving us your word. We know that your word brings to us light and truth, and it is the unfolding of your word which brings life. It is bread to us, to a hungry soul, to thirsty people. We pray, O oh God, that you would feed us now from your word. Open our eyes and our hearts that we may behold in your word wonderful things. And we pray that you would establish your word to us, that we might yield obedience and love and affection to you our great God and King, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it is the first Sunday of a new year, so I figured we would start a new book today. We're just going to leave off the Gospel of John. Just didn't buy that for a second, did you? Turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 9. First Sunday of a new year, we will be starting a new chapter. John, chapter 9. This is a bit of a special chapter in some ways. That it seems like... Um, Every chapter that we go through in the Gospel of John tends to become my favorite almost immediately. And I know I've said that before. Uh, there's an old adage among preachers that if you ask a preacher what his favorite book of the Bible is, he'll always tell you whatever book he happens to be studying through. That's usually his favorite book of the Bible. And it seems to be that way with chapters as well. As we work our way through the Gospel of John, I keep wanting to say, well, this is, so far this is my favorite chapter. But we know that if every chapter is your favorite chapter, then no chapter is really your favorite chapter, right? If every chapter is special, no chapter is special. So maybe it would be better to say that the ninth chapter of John is a whole new treasure chest of jewels and gems and insights and truths that we can glean from. And it seems as if each chapter in John's Gospel is unique in its own way and it has unique truths and unique perspective and unique things that we can glean. And John chapter 9 is no different. It, it seems to be a very significant chapter. And you and I might sort of glean that it is a significant chapter merely from its location. John 9 comes between John 8 and John 10. You say, that's not the most profound thing I've heard yet this morning, and it's not. It does come between John 8 and John 10, but John 8 is a discourse, and John 10 is a discourse, and those are not just two ordinary discourses, as if there is any such thing as an ordinary discourse from Jesus, but this two of the most memorable discourses and the most well-known discourses in all of John's gospel. John chapter 8 is the discourse, the light of the world discourse. John chapter 10 is the good shepherd discourse. So John 8, light of the world discourse. John 10, good shepherd discourse. And sandwiched in between that is this miracle of the healing of the man born blind in John chapter 9. Now we just finished studying the light of the world discourse in John 8. And I've been telling you since the beginning that I have encouraged you to memorize the seven discourses and the seven miracles of Jesus in John's Gospel. There are seven discourses and seven miracles. We could call them the seven sayings and the seven signs in John's Gospel. And you remember, I'm just going to quickly review the first five because the light of the world discourse is the fifth, that's John 8, is the fifth of John's seven discourses. The first discourse was the new birth discourse in John chapter 3. You must be born again, given to Nicodemus. The second discourse was the living water discourse in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well. Remember that? Jesus said, if you ask me, I would give you living water. Then there is the divine son discourse. That's the third discourse in John chapter 5. And that was where Jesus said to the Jews of his day, you must honor me even as you honor the Father. And he argued his right and his authority 
to heal on the Sabbath. Then following that, the fourth one was the bread of life discourse in John 6, where Jesus said, I am the bread of life, and he who believes in me will never hunger, and he who comes to me will never thirst. And then the fifth of the seven discourses was the light of the world discourse in John chapter 8. And that's the one we just finished. Now we're beginning in John chapter 9, the sixth of John's seven miracles in his gospel. The sixth of his seven miracles. Let me review for you the first five miracles in John's gospel. There were The first miracle was the turning of the water into wine in John chapter 2 in Cana of Galilee. The second miracle was the healing of the nobleman's son at the end of John 4, after the discussion with the woman at the well. That was also up in the northern regions in Galilee. The third miracle was the healing of the cripple at the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5. The fourth miracle was the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6, which preceded the bread of life discourse. The fifth miracle was the walking on water in John chapter 6. And now this is the sixth miracle out of John's seven miracles, the healing of the man born blind. There's one more miracle after this, and it's John chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus. And some might argue that the resurrection of Jesus is a miracle. It is, but it's not usually classified as a sign like the rest of these signs are. It was a miracle. It had a different purpose, and it really signified something different. It's not sort of in the same group as these other miracles. So seven signs and seven discourses. There's only two discourses left in John's Gospel. That's John chapter 10, the Good Shepherd Discourse, and and what's called the Upper Room Discourse, which is John 13 through 17. That's five chapters. 13 through 17. That's a long, right? That's going to take us a couple weeks to work through that discourse. So this is now the, uh, we've done five discourses. This is now the sixth miracle. Do you realize that it has been all the way back in John chapter 6 since we've had a miracle in John's gospel? It just seems like a long time ago, doesn't it? No, it actually was a long time ago. John chapter 6 was a long time ago. That was the walking on water. Well, now the sixth of John's seven miracles. Listen, if, if you are the type of person that makes New Year's resolutions, resolve to memorize the seven sayings and the seven signs of John Gosp- John's gospel. You realize, you didn't even know this, but if you had that all in your head, you would have an outline of the book of John from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 17. And what about 18, 19, 20, and 21? What's well, the end of the story? We know the end of the story, right? Arrest, uh, trial, crucifixion, burial, resurrection, resurrection appearances. We know the end of the story. So if you get those seven signs and those seven sayings down in John's gospel, you've got the entire gospel of John down all the way already in your head, and you can kind of put it all in place. So today we're going to get an overview of the ninth chapter, this sixth of the seven signs in John's Gospel. We're just going to get an overview of it. We are going to, in a moment, go through the entire chapter, like we've done for several chapters now in John's Gospel. Before we do, I want to give you a few just sort of general observations about this miracle and how it fits in John and sort of how it compares to some of the other miracles in John. The first thing would be this. This is the only place in all four Gospels where this miracle is recorded. That's much like some of the other signs in John's Gospel. This miracle only occurs in John. Now, I'd say that not to call into question any of the legitimacy of the details or any of the uh, the legitimacy of the miracle itself. It's not to question it at all. Just because it doesn't occur in Matthew, Mark, and Luke doesn't mean it's any less reliable or any less truthful than any of the other miracles. How many times does God have to say something for it to be true? One time. Right? So you have it here in John. It is true. We embrace it. We accept it. But I do point that out to remind you of this. John seems to record unique sayings and unique miracles that are not in the other Gospels. We have every necessary reason to believe that John was well aware of Matthew, Mark, and Luke and their contents when he wrote his own Gospel. And he chose sayings and he chose signs or miracles that Matthew, Mark, and Luke did not record 
And John sort of constructs his theology and, and his gospel around those unique sayings and signs. And John chapter 9, this miracle of the man born blind, healing of the man born blind, it is a unique miracle in a number of ways, not only because it's only recorded in John, but there's a couple other things that make it unique. Healing people born blind belongs to a class of miracles that was particularly rare and unheard of. This is the type of miracle that is particularly rare and unheard of. Look at down at verse 32 in chapter 9. This is the observation of the man who is healed. He says in verse 32, Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. Now there are reports and myths and legends and stuff like that from antiquity of people who were healed of their blindness through different means and different ways. But what this man is saying is in the Old Testament, it has never been heard that anybody has been born blind and then healed, right? There is not a single occurrence in all of the Old Testament miracles that's like this. There's not one reference, not one miracle of all the miracles in the Old Testament, not one of them is a man born blind being healed. In fact, not one of them is somebody who was blind being healed. Not only that, but in the New Testament, uniquely, the only person to perform a miracle like this is Jesus. It's not even recorded that his apostles, who did miracles, it's not even recorded that his apostles did a miracle like this. This is not the only person who was blind that Jesus healed. But in all of the miracles in the Bible, even though they were rare, and the people who did them were rare, nobody did this other than Jesus. Nobody gave sight to the blind other than Jesus. Moses, miracle worker, he didn't do it. Elijah and Elisha, no miracles like that. Joshua, nope. Isaiah, nope. None in the time of the prophets. How about the apostles? None of the apostles. Nowhere in the book of Acts. The only thing that's even remotely close to this in all of the rest of Scripture, the only thing even remotely close is when Saul of Tarsus was blinded on the road to Damascus. You remember Ananias came in and laid his hands on Saul, and something like scales fell from his eyes and he received his sight. That's the only thing that's even close to this. But even that is not quite like this. Healing somebody blind belongs to a category of miracles that was uniquely rare and unheard of, and only Jesus did it. I think there's a reason for that, and we'll get to this more when we dive back into the beginning of chapter 1, but this is one of the reasons for it, I think. Healing people born blind, belong, that healing blindness belonged to a class of miracles that the Jews expected would be indicative of the Messiah and that the Messiah would do. Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5, Isaiah says, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. So the Jews were taught to believe and they expected that when the Messiah shows up, the blind people will receive their sight. If it was a uniquely messianic sign, then that would explain why it is that it's never done in the Old Testament and why it is that none of the apostles ever did this. There's only one person in all of Scripture that is recorded to be giving sight to the blind. And who is it? The one that the Old Testament says when he shows up, he will make the blind men see. So it's a uniquely messianic sign that Jesus does here and it is indicative of his messianic credentials. A second general observation about the sign and its contents and context. This was a very public sign intended by Jesus to draw attention to himself. It is a very public sign intended by Jesus to draw attention to himself. It was done in a public place, likely at the entrance or just inside the temple, the temple walls. It was done in full view of a lot of public people, people standing around milling in the general public. It was widely spread, the news of it was. And this was done on a person whose condition and whose, whose curse or whose, whose uh, illness was well known to everybody. So that when he was finally healed, everybody heard about this and word got around. It was a very public min- a miracle done in a public place on a person whose condition was well known. 
And Jesus did it in order to draw attention to himself. And you're going to see that here in just a moment. There were other miracles that Jesus did that were more private in nature. For instance, healing, the turning of the water into wine. How many people witnessed to that? Small town, small village, just Jesus, his disciples, his mother, a few guests at the wedding. Really not a huge event, relatively speaking. It wasn't in front of thousands. It wasn't in front of tens of thousands. It was in front of a relatively small group of people. Well, that happened in the northern region of the, of the nation. Uh, how about walking on water? Who witnessed that? Just the disciples, right? A small group of people. How about the healing of the nobleman's son? Who was privy to witness that? The nobleman, his family, his servants, basically his household. Nobody else. All three of those miracles that had relatively small audiences were in the northern region of the land. There are three miracles that John records that happened in the southern half of the nation, down where the, in Judea, where the religious leaders were, where the Jews were, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and all the religious leadership, down in the political center. Three miracles. All three of them in John's Gospel are public ministry of miracles. They are big miracles, and they are ones whose, whose uh, effects and whose story was circulated widely. For instance, the... Uh, Healing of the cripple, John chapter 5, the crippled man, Pharisees saw that. That was right under their nose at the pool of Bethesda inside the, inside the city of Jerusalem. Then there was the, this one, the healing of the man born blind. And of course, you're going to see this becomes well known immediately, very public, very open. And then there is the raising of Lazarus from the dead, right? And then Lazarus walking around Jerusalem, everybody heard about it. And that miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead was one that sparked the Basically, the Jews all getting together and saying, we have to deal with this. We have to kill him or the nation will believe in him. And that's what said, there's the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead that sort of set in motion the gears of a real intentional plot to kill Jesus. So three miracles, all of them very public in Judea and Jerusalem, all of them intended by Jesus to draw attention to himself for unique purposes, each one of them. And um, uh, all three of them, John records for us the reaction of the Jews. All right, public miracle. How do I know that it was intentional by Jesus to do this and for it to be public? Look at verse 14 of chapter 9. Now, John says, it was the Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Uh-oh. Sabbath, right? You've got seven days to do this, and you choose what day? The Sabbath. You know that that is the one day that the Jewish leadership is going to object to. That is the one day that is going to get the ire of every Pharisee in the entire nation doing it on the Sabbath. It was an intentional choice for Jesus to do that on the Sabbath day. So it was a public miracle. Third, this is the third observation. What is most striking about the miracle is not necessarily the miracle itself, but the reaction to it. And this you'll see as we kind of work our way through it. What is really striking about how John records this is not the details of the miracle. He sort of tells them in a very a very quick, straightforward, uh, uh, not really an embellished way at all. Just this is what happened, here's what happened, you see it, and blah, blah, blah. But then the rest of the chapter is really this reaction to it. What is The miracle itself is, stri- is striking. Don't get me wrong. The miracle itself is amazing and incredible and instructive. But where John M. spends the time is not on the miracle itself, but on the reaction. Because it is in the reaction that you and I see the whole point of the miracle. The teachable detail of the miracle is seen in the reaction of the people to the miracle. Now contrast that with other places in John's Gospel. Where, for instance, in John 5, when Jesus heals the man who was the cripple at the pool of Bethesda, the rest of the chapter is Jesus explaining the point of the miracle. I am the Son of God. I have authority over the Sabbath. I can do whatever I want on the Sabbath because my Father's been working until now and I myself am working. I'm equal with God. That was the point of the miracle was to push the issue of the Sabbath and show that He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He created the Sabbath. It's His Sabbath to do with as He pleases. That was the point. Then in John chapter 6, the feeding of the multitude, the 5,000. After that, Jesus gives an entire sermon explaining the point of the miracle. What was the point of the miracle? 
I'm the bread of life. If you hunger, come to me. Not for physical bread, but for spiritual bread. I'm here to provide for you spiritually everything that you might need. That was the point. So you have the miracle and then the explanation of the point of the miracle. Then a miracle and explanation of the point of the miracle. John chapter 8 is a bit different. John chapter, or John chapter 9 is a bit different. In John chapter 9, you have a miracle. Then you don't have Jesus explaining the point of the miracle. What you have is the reaction of the Jews. And by the time we get to the end of chapter 9, we say, oh, I get the point of the miracle now. The teaching of the miracle is in this remarkable reaction to what Jesus does. And fourth, a fourth observation, there is a connection between this miracle and the discourse that precedes it. John 8 and John 9 are connected. And I want you to see at least one connection. Look at verse 5. Jesus says to them, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Does that sound familiar? Sure does. Right back in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That reference in John 9 verse 5 where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. That reference in our minds should connect what is about to happen and what is happening in John 9 with everything that he has taught in John 8. There is a connection between the sermon in John 8 and the sign in John 9. We've seen this connection before, right? John 5 and John 6 are good examples of it. In John 5 and 6, you have the the sign and then the sermon, which is connected, that explains the sign. That was the healing of the cripple and the Son of Man, uh, the the, uh, Divine Son Discourse. Then in John 6, you have the sign of the feeding of the 5,000. Then the explanation of the sign, which is the bread of life discourse. In John 8 and 9, it's switched around a little bit. You don't have miracle first and then explanation. What you have in John 8 and 9 is this. A teaching, and then you have this miracle, which is an illustration of the teaching. And you'll see that as we work our way through. Okay, so that is that is the introduction to John chapter 9. That's actually an introduction to the introduction of John chapter 9. Now introducing my introductions. Can that be done? Apparently so, I just did it. So now let's dive into the text, beginning at verse 1. We'll work our way through this whole chapter, and we'll kind of pause for moments because there's some things that I want you to see. And we're doing this in order that we can kind of get the whole scope of the chapter. Take it all in, because if we just sort of took it in chunks, we wouldn't really do justice to the whole main idea of the chapter, which we see as we work our way through John 9. Verse 1. Oh, before we get to verse (laughs) 1. This is going slower than you thought. Remember, chapter 8 ends with him in the temple doing what? Teaching the Jews, he is claimed to be the I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. And how did they respond to that? Did they worship him as the I am? No, they picked up stones to stone him. They wanted to kill him for claiming to be God. They understood exactly what he was claiming. They understood that he was claiming to be Yahweh in human flesh. Their God. The one that Moses saw in the burning bush. He was claiming to be that same God. And they didn't worship him. They picked up stones to stone him. So Jesus, in a supernatural act, hid himself from their sight, made them basically blind to his presence, and walked out of the temple. And he has made them blind to his presence, walks out of the temple, and what does he encounter? A blind man. Right? That's another connection between chapters 8 and chapter 9. All right, verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? It's a good question. It's not a completely inappropriate question. It's a question that was on the minds of the Jews, something that they discussed. And we'll get into, when we go back into this, we'll get into sort of the theology of the Jews and how they viewed this. But the disciples want to know, what is the connection between this man's being born blind and sin? Is it just the effects of sin generally that causes somebody to be born blind? Or did his parents sin in a specific way that they had a blind child? Or did this man in some way sin and God caused him to be born blind knowing he would sin? So whose sin is responsible for this man's condition? Is it his parents' sin 
or is it his own sin? That, by the way, is a question that is as old as sin itself, right? We want to know why do bad things happen? Why is there suffering? Is it the cause of sin? Is it the outworking of karma? Is it the outworking of God's justice in this life in some way? Not that I believe in karma, by the way, but other people do. And right, that's where the whole idea of karma comes from, this connection between what happens in this life and doing bad things or sin. So what is the connection between things that happen here and what we do or do not deserve in God's scheme of justice? That's a question that is old. You go back to the book of Job, whose events occur very early, probably right after the flood. Job, probably the first book of your Bible written. And what is the issue that Job wrestles with there and his friends? Why did this happen to Job? And what is his friend's answer? Sin. Pointing at sin. Sin, Job. It's your sin. It's your iniquity. This is why God has done this. What is the connection between what happens to me in this life and my sin and the justice of God? Is there a connection there that we can draw? That's their question in verse 3. Look at verse 4. Sorry, that was their question in verse 2. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And I'll tell you something. There is enough glory in verse 3 to keep a preacher busy for months. That verse, verse 3, is loaded with theology. And I mean, it is significant theology. That is Jesus' answer to why do bad things happen. And it's going to take us a bit, probably a week or two, to kind of unpack that. It wasn't this man's sin. It wasn't his parents' sin. He was born this way for the glory of God. The question the disciples ask is a question that is as old as sin. And the answer that Jesus gives is an answer that is as big as God. It's for His glory. That's the answer to the question, why does anything happen for His glory? That's the short answer. But you and I got to work that out, and we have to ask ourselves, do we believe this about God, truly? Verse 4. We must work the works of Him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. And while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Remember, that's connection back to chapter 8. When He had said this, He spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, and applied the clay to his eyes, and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed, and came back seeing. Now, that statement in verse 5, when Jesus says, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world, this was the statement that he made right before he made the man see. The disciples should have made this connection. They should have said, Okay, he's the light of the world. Here's a man living in darkness that he makes see. Sight, light of the world, darkness, light, dark. Ah, the light of the world makes blind men see. The light of the world has come into the world so that people who are blind, born that way, might see. That's the connection that should have been made. But as you see through the rest of the chapter, nobody makes that connection. That's the obvious connection. That's sort of the lesson of the miracle itself. Blind men see because the light of the world has come into the world. And because the light has come into the world, darkness has been dispelled, and now we have light, and now people who have lived in darkness their whole lives can see, like the prophet said, those who walk in darkness see a great light. As Isaiah, I think it's, well, I'm not even going to guess where it's at. It's in the end, last half of the book of Isaiah. All right, so that's the point of the miracle. Then Jesus employs these means, and these are unique means. He picks up some clay, spits on the clay, mixes it all together, and applies it to the eyes of the man born blind, and then gives him this instruction, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. That's an odd way of doing a miracle, don't you think? That is like nothing else we've read in John's Gospel. It it is the means by which the miracle is done that is loaded with symbolism and significance 
There, there, there's symbolism and significance in all of this. Jesus is doing a miracle in a specific way on a specific purpose, a person for a specific purpose. And we'll get into that later. But the means sort of strike us as odd. Did Jesus need to do this? Did he need to touch the man? Did he need to use clay? Did he need to spit? Now, I'm a kind of a gerbophobe. Right before the service here, after I shook everybody's hand, I go back there, I pump the Purell, and I do this. And I kind of dab it up around my face and around my neck and do all of that. I'm, I could bathe in Purell if I could. The idea of spitting in somebody's eyes to perform a miracle is a bit uh, queasy to me. It's the, the, the means of this is very, very striking and odd. Jesus didn't need to do this. Back at the end of chapter 4, he healed the nobleman's son from a distance. The nobleman came and Jesus said, go, your son lives. wasn't even there for that. He could have just spoke the word and the man would have been healed. He could have just snapped his fingers and the man's eyes would have been opened, but he didn't. He applied a certain means, told the man to go wash. The man went and washed, and he came back seeing. Verse 8, Therefore the neighbors of those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is this is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, Yeah, this is him. Right? So he comes back home, and now he can see. All of his life, everybody around him, his neighbors, his family, his relatives, everybody who lives near him in a whole section of the town and all the people around it, they have known him as the blind, poor beggar. And they've seen him at the temple. They've gone into the temple. They see him begging outside the temple, as was the custom of beggars. And now they see him walking around without a cane, without assistance, without anything else, able to see as clearly as they can see. And they're they're unsure at first because this is so unheard of that this is even the guy. So they start asking, is this not the one who used to sit and beg? And some were saying, yeah, this is him. Verse 9, still others were saying, nobody is like him. <laughs> yeah, all those blind beggars, they all look alike. This isn't the one. This is one that looks like him. And it's because they all look the same. They're all dressed in tattered robes. They all never bathe. They all have their hands out. And when you walk past somebody needy over and over and over again, the, the actual physical characteristics of them begin to lose their distinction. It's like him. Not quite the one, but he's very similar. They look, this looks similar to the other one. And what does he say? I'm he. That's me. I am the one. I am the one who used to sit and beg. So they were saying to him, how then were your eyes open? That's the most obvious question. And uh, how then were your eyes open? He answered, the man who was called Jesus made clay, anointed my eyes, said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away, I washed, and I received my sight. Well, that is just a straightforward, these are the facts of the case, right? Just the facts, ma'am. These are them. Here's the facts. This, 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 this will happen, and now I can see. And so they asked him, they said to him, where is he? Where is Jesus? And he said, I don't know. I want you to notice something. As we work our way through this chapter, there's another striking feature of John chapter 9, and it's this. The number of questions that are asked all the way through John 9 is stunning. I read through, I counted 17 different questions asked in this chapter. 17 questions. Only one of them is asked by Jesus, and that's in verse 35, where Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And that's a question that Jesus asks that he knows the answer to. Everybody else is asking questions. The neighbors ask questions. The man born blind asks questions. The disciples have asked him questions. The Pharisees are going to start asking him questions. The parents are asking questions. Everybody's asking questions. Sixteen questions asked in John chapter 9. And here's another stunning feature. Watch for how many people say, I don't know. When they say to the man born blind, where's Jesus? I don't know. They bring his parents in. Is this your son? How did he receive his sight? How he received his sight? I don't know. Who healed him? I don't know. Later on the Pharisees say, as for this man, Jesus, we don't know where he's from. In John 9, nobody knows anything. Everybody's asking questions. This is the irony of the chapter. And here's a man who sees and he knows everything. And he's surrounded by people who have nothing but questions. In a chapter where you would expect the truth to be as clear as it's ever been. Irony, right? John chapter 9. Verse 13. So they brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now it was the Sabbath. Uh Uh-oh. 
It was the Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And then the Pharisees who were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, before we get on to that real quick, why did they bring the man to the Pharisees? Here's the reason they brought him to the Pharisees. The man who has been healed on the Sabbath creates a theological conundrum. Here's the theological conundrum. They say Jesus is a sinner because he's violating the Sabbath. Now you have Jesus healing a man on the Sabbath. If Jesus is from God, if Jesus is sent from God, as he claims to be, all the way through chapter 8, claimed to be that, sent from God. If he is sent from God, why does he, and, and he runs roughshod over our Sabbath traditions, what does that say about our Sabbath traditions? If he is sent from God and he runs roughshod over our Sabbath traditions, what does that say about our Sabbath traditions? But if he is not sent from God and our Sabbath traditions are from God, how does he make blind men see? That's the conundrum. You have a man who has been born blind, healed on the Sabbath. Somebody had to have violated their Sabbath law to heal him on the Sabbath. So they take him into the Pharisees to be quizzed by the Pharisees. Look, if you have a theological question, who do you go to? The people who are supposed to have all the theological answers. And who is that in Judea? That's the Pharisees. So they bring Exhibit 1 into the Pharisees. This creates a problem. What do we do about this? So the Pharisees begin to ask him, how he received his sight. And he said to them, this is in verse 15, he applied clay to my eyes and I washed and I see. Well, straightforward. I think that the man, he doesn't mention Jesus' name, the man, in telling about this. I think he's he's doing a favor, trying to do Jesus a favor by not even mentioning that it was Jesus. He just says he. I was blind. He applied clay to my eyes and, now, and I went and washed in the pool of Siloam and now I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man, speaking of Jesus, is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others of the Pharisees were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? You see the conundrum? Here's a man who is cannot be from God because he violates the Sabbath. Well, if he violates the Sabbath, how can he perform such signs? That's the issue. That's the theological question all the way through John 9. Is Jesus a man sent from God? Does he speak for God? Is he God in human flesh? Or is he not? If he is not, how does he heal? If he is, why does he violate our Sabbath? That's what they're quizzing him about. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? Now this is curious, right? They go to the theological experts with a theological question, and what do they do? What do they know? they got nothing but questions. They've got answers to questions that they didn't want to hear. They have the questions. They didn't get the answers they like, and so they ask him, so what do you say about him? <laughs> what do you mean, what do I say about him? You're the experts. You've read the Old Testament. This man had never read the Old Testament. Never read the Old Testament. These men are experts in the Old Testament. These men are the experts in theology. This man had never read a theology text. He had never seen Jesus. He had never seen a miracle from Jesus. He had, to our knowledge, he had never heard Jesus teach. He had never been there for any of these arguments or these confrontations between Jesus and the Pharisees. Now you have the Pharisees who have received an answer that they don't like to a question that they have, and now they say to him, so what do you say about him? They're, they're trying to, they've basically created a trap for him, as you're going to see here in just a second. Look what he says. He said to them, he's a prophet. Is that a true statement? It is. I'll tell you this, with his old understanding of the Old Testament and their understanding of the Old Testament, that word prophet is loaded with significance. Right? That means he's sent from God. That means he speaks from God. He has the authority of God. He has power from God. That means that he is commissioned by God and we ought to listen to him. He may even there be speaking of the prophet. He says he is a prophet. He knows that much for sure. Verse 18, Then the Jews, 
The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been born blind and had received a sight. <laughs> Look at that. Uh, we just, what, what do you, what do you do if you get an answer to a question that you don't like? You don't like the answer. What do you do? Yeah, you fabricate some black helicopter conspiracy theory that might explain what it is that is sitting right. Maybe he wasn't born blind after all. Maybe the whole thing has just been kind of a, a hoax. And he's been waiting until this time to reveal it to us. I mean, what nonsense. So they call in his parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? Your parents are in on it too, right? Is this your son, the one you, you say he was born blind? They're trying to come up with some way to discredit Jesus. And we said this before. People who do not want to believe the truth will believe anything but the truth, right? We said that in John 8. People who hate the truth will believe anything just so long as it is not the truth. These people with this man born blind in front of them, everybody knows that it's obvious, it's public. They're willing to believe that his parents have fabricated this whole thing, that they are in on it, that he is in on it, and that he wasn't really born blind, that the whole thing is just a hoax, a joke. They're willing to believe anything just so long as it is not the truth that Jesus made the man see. Is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son. We know that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes? We do not know. See that? We don't know. We don't know. The Pharisees know? No. Did the man know where Jesus was? No. Nobody knows. Nobody knows anything in John chapter 9. Everybody's asking questions. There are no answers in John 9. At least not on the surface. And they ask his parents, Is this your son? He's our son. We know he was born blind. That's all we know. This is as far as they go. And they actually, after a fashion, sort of throw their son under the bus. If there were buses in that day, he would have thrown him under, they got thrown under the bus. Look at verse 21. But now he sees we don't know. Who opened his eyes? We don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. He is an adult. He can testify for himself. You go ask him. They don't even want to go any further. Why? Verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him, that is Jesus, to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. He would be excommunicated. They would lose everything if they came, if they even said anything remotely positive about Jesus. So hostile were they in their intent to discredit Jesus and their hatred for him and for the truth that they had already determined that if anybody breathes even a word positive about Jesus, you're out. Kick him out of the synagogue. That is hatred for the truth, my friends. That is hatred for the truth. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. They didn't want to touch this. Just let, us, let their son do it. Don't say anything positive about it whatsoever. Verse 24, so the second time they called the man who has been blind and said to him, give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. Now what do you do if you've asked a question, you get an answer you don't like? You concoct a conspiracy theory. When that falls apart, then what do you do? You ask the same question, hoping that eventually you get an answer you like. This is why your children do this all the time. Can I have ice cream? No. Can I have ice cream? No. Can I have ice cream? No. Ask the same question a hundred times, hoping that eventually you're going to ask the question and you're going to get the answer that you want, right? That's what they do. So they have talked to the man. They didn't get what they wanted. They talked to his parents. They didn't get the answer that they wanted. They go back to the man and they think to themselves, and this is almost bizarre, maybe if we ask the questions in a different order, he will answer differently. So they ask him the same questions all over again. The second time, we know that this man is a sinner. Then he answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. Again, I don't know, right? Another I don't know statement. Whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Now friends, that is, a, that is a statement that everyone who has come to faith in Christ early on in their Christian walk would have said. 
They would have said, there are a lot of things that I do not know about Jesus, but there's one thing I know. I once was blind, and now I see. I once was dead, and now I am alive. That is a quintessential Christian testimony. There are a lot of things about God I didn't understand the day I got saved. But one thing I did know, I was blind, and now I see. I know that. I was dead, and now I am spiritually alive. Every person who has been regenerated can utter the words in verse 25. Verse 26, So they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? The questions again. Maybe, maybe this time he'll answer the way we want him to answer. They're just, they're hoping that this man is going to turn state's evidence on Jesus and tell them something that they can use to discredit him. But the man is strong. This is an incredibly strong man. He's not willing to deny what he knows to be true by experience and by reality. He knows this to be true. And he will testify to this. A strong man. I mean, his parents have thrown him under the bus because they fear him, fear the uh, Jewish authorities. What does this man fear? Apparently nothing. Look at verse 26, or 27. He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't also want to become his disciples too, do you? Oh, they reviled him. No, hey, we're not, we're not interested in any of that. We, they say, we are Moses' disciples. You're this man's disciple. And what was their view of this man? Jesus. He was a blasphemer. He was a false teacher. He was leading the people astray. He was a Sabbath breaker. He was a sinner. He was a vile individual under the curse of God. That was their view of Jesus. You're a follower of this man. We? We follow Moses. Followers of Moses. We've already dealt with that back in chapter 5, by the way. Right? Remember chapter 8? We're children of Abraham. They're always claiming somebody, some predecessor that they were following. They were so proud to be on his side. We're followers of Moses. That's verse 28. They reviled him and said, You're his disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man... We do not know, again, questions, where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Now, well, here is an amazing thing. Can you hear the sarcasm there? By the way, considering what this man has been through, it takes a lot to amaze him, right? But he's amazed by what now? Their unbelief. This is an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, um, And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Remember, this is the issue that started this whole discussion. Is he a man sent from God or not? If he is, why does he break our Sabbath traditions? If he is not, how can he heal on the Sabbath? There are only two options. Either he is sent from God or he is not sent from God. And here is this man who has been born blind, who has never read the Old Testament, never heard any teaching from Jesus that we know of, and he is able to school these Pharisees in theology. What he has said is theologically accurate. If he was not sent from God, he could do nothing. That's a theologically accurate statement. And here are Pharisees who have read the Old Testament, who know the Old Testament, who are supposed doctors and scholars in theology. And this man, blind, taking them to school. Theologically, he is beating them like a tied-up goat. And they have no place to go. They have no answer for his questions, no answer for his statements. So they say in verse 34, they answered him, you were born entirely in sins. Remember, that was the issue that the disciples raised back in chapter 2. Do you remember that? And we end this chapter the same way that we started this chapter. You were born entirely in sins. That's why you were blind, because of your sin. You were born in sin. Your parents are sinners. You're a sinner. Does this man fear being put out by them? Apparently not. He was never accepted or welcomed in their eyes to begin with. He was a blind man. He was under the curse of God. 
As far as the Pharisees are concerned, his parents are sinners. He's a sinner. He's under the curse of God. He's a nobody. He's not like us, righteous Pharisees. You were born entirely in sins. That's their statement. Then their question, and you are going to teach us? Had he just taught them? Yeah, he had just schooled them. He had just given them a whole theological discourse on the reality of how God works and who Jesus was. And all they do is dismiss him. You're nothing but a sinner. You have no right or authority to teach us. And so, verse 34 so they put him out of the synagogue. Really, he was never, never in. He never would have been welcomed or embraced by them because of his, because of his blindness. Because in their view, he was a sinner under the curse of God. So they make it official. They put him out of the synagogue. Verse 35. Jesus. Now it seems like a long time since we've read his name, right? He, where has he been for the whole chapter? He hasn't been part of this discussion. As far as we know, he's had no interaction with the Pharisees during this period of time. But he has never been absent because Jesus knows exactly what is going on with this man, right? His sheep hear his voice. He knows them. They come to him. He gives them eternal life. This man is under his watchful care the whole time. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had put him out and finding him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? By the way, the first question asked in the whole chapter where the person who asked it already knows the answer to the question. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And that phrase could mean Son of God, the Divine One. Uh, it's an Old Testament indication. We'll see what that means when we get to it. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Now that is a that is a heart that is a heart that is prepared to believe anything that this healer has said to him, anything. This man knows that Jesus is a prophet, but what he is not yet sure of is this: is this a prophet who is coming to point me to the Son of Man, or is this the prophet who is the Son of Man himself? So he asked him, "Who is he, Lord? You just simply tell me who this person is, and I will believe." Jesus said to him. In a note of irony so thick you can cut it with a knife, you have both seen him, and he is the one talking with you. Right? Who is the Son of Man? And Jesus responds to this, Who are you looking at? You see me. That's the answer to the question. You have seen him. He is speaking to you. And so the man says, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. This is the first person recorded in John's Gospel to worship Jesus. He's not the last, but he is the first. Now this is interesting because in John chapter 8, Jesus had said to the Pharisees, he had argued over and over again, that he is the I am. Right? Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. For this reason I said to you, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Before Abraham was born, I am. He has claimed to be God in human flesh. How did they respond? With worship? And they picked up stones to stone him. Jesus has made no such claim to this man. All he has said to them is, I am the Son of Man. I've given you sight. I am the one that you ought to believe in. And what does he do? He worships. Now notice the contrast between this man in chapter 9 and the Pharisees in chapter 8. The Pharisees in chapter 8. Remember in chapter 8 there were believers? Remember that? They believed on him, didn't they? Verse 38, 31 in that neighborhood. They had believed on him, but were they truly regenerate, born-again believers? They were fake believers, false believers, Unbelieving believers. There are people who embraced him outwardly but wouldn't embrace him when he, when he taught them. They were the fake believers of chapter 8 because those same people that John says had quote unquote believed on him then turned around and tried to stone him. And Jesus identifies them as, as sons of Satan and in bondage to sin and iniquity and as dead in their trespasses and sins. But here's a man who has believed and what is his first act of obedience as he believes? To worship. That is the indication of a true believer. You've seen what fake believers do in John chapter 8. Now you get what a true believer does in John chapter 9. He worships the one who has saved him, the one who has opened his eyes. Verse 38, and the, 
He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment. Now, because this has been so public and so obvious to everybody, now you get a little bit of an indication that Jesus is speaking here, and he's going to kind of describe to us the gist of this miracle in verse 39. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. Now we suddenly get an indication that really the issue of blindness and sight throughout this whole chapter has really been a living parable of something else. Now we get an indication that Jesus is not speaking about physical blindness, but a different kind of blindness. For this reason I have come into the world for judgment so that those who do not see may see and those who claim to see or think they see may become blind. That's the act of judgment, by the way. That those who think they see and refuse to admit that they are blind become or are confirmed in their blindness by Him coming into the world. That is judgment. Now apparently, and I would only speculate at this point, that there may have been some Pharisees who were following this man around trying to get a bead on where Jesus was at and to sort of see, is this really true? Is this a long-lasting miracle? Is this just a fraud? Because in verse 40, those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we're not blind too, are we? And see, so they get the idea, right? Jesus is not speaking about physical blindness. Are we blind too? Let me give you a good rule of thumb. If you have to ask if you're spiritually blind, you're spiritually blind. These men are so blind, they don't even know they're blind. Are we blind too? They got his point. Verse 41, Jesus said to them, If you were blind, and and I would paraphrase it this way, if you were to recognize your blindness, you would have no sin because I would have taken away, I would have forgiven it because you would have come to me for the remedy for your blindness. But since you say, since you insist that you see and refuse to admit that you are blind, your sin remains. You continue in your sin because you will not admit that you're blind. If you admitted you were blind, I would remove your sin and give you everlasting life. That's the promise. Now that's John chapter Nine. It's amazing, isn't it? There's, there's, it is loaded. There's so much there. Let me give you three quick observations from the entire chapter. First of all, you and I get the impression that what is at issue here is not physical blindness so much as spiritual blindness. Right? Here's a man who lived his entire life thinking that he was a blind man among the sighted, surrounded by the sighted. He is healed and he becomes the sighted man among the sighted. By the end of the chapter, he realizes that he is a sighted man among the blind. And that all along, he was merely one blind man living among other blind men. That's quite a transformation, isn't it? From being a blind man thinking you're surrounded by people who have sight, to realizing you're the only one in the whole chapter who has true sight, and you're surrounded by a bunch of blind people. The second striking thing about the whole chapter, again, is the questions. All of the questions in the context of a chapter where everything is so clear to at least one person in the chapter, this was obvious to him. (laughs) He was the blind man. He could see everything. What was obvious to him, he can't understand how it's not obvious to everybody. This is an amazing thing. You don't know where he's from. (laughs) I know. And I'm the blind man. And I know. But now he's a man with sight. And he sees. And all of them are blind. And what do they know? Nothing. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. They sound like Joel Osteen. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. There's nothing but I don't know to offer. Everybody in the chapter, I don't know. Nothing but questions. Listen, the answers to the questions are obvious to anyone who has eyes to see, right? The man has eyes to see now. And he sees. He gets it. Third observation from the whole chapter, by way of application, 
Do you notice that there is not a record in this entire chapter of anyone celebrating the fact that this man has received a sight? Anybody notice that? Nobody. Nobody celebrates this. His neighbors don't celebrate. There's no mention that the disciples rejoiced at this. His parents? Nope. The Pharisees? Nope. Nobody. That is the tragic condition of human blindness and the hard human heart. They so hate the light and so hate the truth that they cannot appreciate any of it. Not a bit of it. They cannot celebrate this great act of grace that has been done to him because if they were to celebrate this great act of grace that has been done to him, it would mean their own condemnation. It means that he is the light, he is the truth, he is the Messiah. And they are not willing to concede any of that. And so nobody in the whole chapter rejoices that this man can now see. Isn't that stunning? Well, you know how this works. Next week, we begin all over again in verse 1. There is so much, I'm telling you, there is so much below the surface of this. A, there are just gems by the thousands in this chapter. The ironies are so thick. Uh, the details are so precious that when we have a chance to go through them, you will, you will see this is just an, a chapter loaded with theological truth and, and precious jewels. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are so grateful for this time that we can have in Your Word. It is an encouragement to us to be reminded again that we were once blind men living among the blind men. And You have, by Your grace, entirely of Your doing, You have opened our eyes that we may behold the glory of Christ and see His glory and see Him for who He truly is. And by that same sight that You have given us, You continue to transform us from one degree of glory into another as we behold Christ in the pages of Scripture. You sanctify us by the truth. We thank You for what You have shown us and for the encouragement to our hearts that our time in Your Word has been. We thank You for these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.